0: I'm Jeff Cohen. Rabbi Usher Resnick is pretty clear proof that it's not where your journey begins that matters most. Even though he was raised in an entirely secular home, he ultimately became a rabbi, and today spreads Torah through his many classes and writings. He also unfortunately had to go through a family tragedy, which had a deep impact on how he connects with Judaism. He's here to share the details of his journey, as well as how families can overcome grief when faced with truly difficult moments. Rabbi Resnick, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you very much. So clearly, even from the introduction, there's a lot to cover on your journey and what happened with your family. But as with all guests, we like to start at the beginning of where it all starts. So give our listeners a sense of where you were born
1: and raised. So I was born and raised in Los Angeles. I um, went to public school, went to UCLA. When I was in UCLA, my father and my stepmother took a trip to Israel. This is in the 70s. My Uncle had moved to Israel, I think in 72 So my father took his first trip ever to Israel. He came back crazy about Israel And I was in UCLA at the time and he even told me maybe we should take some time off from UCLA Which was a really very untypical thing for him to say But I wasn't very interested in that because I figured probably everyone's religious there. So it's probably a very boring place So I said no And then I finished my time at UCLA, graduated. And then as a graduation present, he gave me a trip to Israel. By that point, I was more more interested. And with my non-Jewish roommate in college, we planned out a backpacking trip through Europe, which would culminate in Israel. At the last minute, my non-Jewish roommate backed out. And I decided since I had the trip planned anyway, I would continue. So I did, and I backpacked by myself basically through Europe, had a fantastic time, and then ended up in Israel at the end of the trip. And at that point, I had no connection whatsoever to Judaism. Although had someone asked me, I probably would have said I'm a proud Jew, not knowing at all what that means or why I would say that, but I probably would have said that.
0: So I can hear clearly that this time in Israel is going to be a major turning point in your life. So before we get to that, I want to just backtrack a little bit, looking at your childhood to set some context of of what Judaism meant for your life and going to public school were there certain customs your family was doing, like how would you characterize your
1: connection to Judaism during your childhood? The only thing I remember was fasting on Yom Kippur and not usually going to synagogue. Again, had someone asked me why I do that, I would have had no answer to why I was doing that. But we we really didn't do much. It's not like we even go to went to synagogue three times a year. I didn't have our bar mitzvah.
0: Did you know anything about Orthodox Judaism? Had you, had you met Orthodox Jews in Los Angeles? Did you have any feelings about it, or you weren't even aware that that was like a level that some people could get to?
1: I never spoke to an Orthodox Jew in my life at that point. The first Orthodox Jew I ever spoke to my entire life was Rabbi Noach Weinberg, my rebbe. But that comes a little bit later in the story. But I never spoke to an Orthodox Jew in my entire life. Had anyone asked me about someone who believes in God, I would have said they're probably very stupid. My concept of a person who believes in God was someone who did strange things, like shaved his head with a little ponytail sticking at the back, or sold flowers on street corners. Strange, bizarre behaviors. I just assumed whoever believed in God must be stupid.
0: Now, you mentioned going to UCLA, and that was around the same time that there was... An opportunity to go to Israel. I think, did you say your parents had gone to Israel? What, What was their desire to be there if it wasn't from a religious reason? Was it something about the country, something about just connecting to their heritage? Why did they want to go?
1: Well, first of all, my father's brother was living in Israel. So to visit him, that was certainly a big thing. My father's father did have a real connection to Israel. He was actually in what's called the Jewish Brigade. In the First World War, the British army had a special group of, they called it a Jewish brigade. In fact, my grandfather was in Israel at the very tail end of the First World War and he personally knew Jabotinsky and stayed in Israel for a number of years. And then he got malaria and left the country and that's when he married my grandmother. So he definitely had a connection to Israel and that could be what was part of my father's connection. My father told me when he was a kid, he remembers seeing signs is before the Second World War, seeing signs on restaurants saying "No Jews or dogs allowed." So he definitely understood what it means to be a Jew and have people hate you as a Jew. I'm thinking
0: about the fact that you talked about backpacking through Europe, and ending up in Israel. That's a very common thing for someone in their late teens or early 20s to do. And you talked about being at UCLA. What did you think your life was going to be? after the trip was over then we'll get to what actually
1: happened while you were in israel i studied psychology but i minored in math my plan was to be a high school math teacher in fact my senior year of college i was actually in a master's program for education and i have a credential as a high school math teacher so my plan was whenever i finish my trip i'll come back and i'll work as a teacher which was always a good job because there's always a shortage of math teachers i love teaching i love math so I figured that would be a great thing. So I, w- I wasn't worried. It's funny, in those days, it was very common for people to travel around with no worries about jobs, no concern about anything. It was very common. You'd, it wasn't like losers doing that. Very intelligent, normal people were doing that all the time.
0: So if I'm thinking about that trip, from what you described, you're not in Israel thinking it's going to be like a future part of your life. It's it's a stop along the many stops you're making on this Adventure you're having before quote your real life starts as a teacher What's the first moment? What's the first thing that happens in Israel that begins this change in trajectory of what Israel what Judaism might mean in your life?
1: Okay, actually, let me just back up a little bit when I was in in Europe traveling around the only Jewish thing I did during my two months in Europe was to visit Dachau because I was um, traveling around Germany and I was in Munich, and it's right outside of Munich. And the feeling I had when I was in Dachau was extremely uncomfortable because I understood this place is very relevant to me, but I had no idea how. It's not the same as someone who's not Jewish. I know I'm Jewish, and this is extremely personal to me, but I have no idea how. And that same feeling repeated itself the first time I was at the hotel. I know this is personal to me, but I have no idea. It was strange. <laughs> Dachau and the Kotel. But those two Jewish experiences were very powerful and very uncomfortable for me.
0: You know, the way you're describing it, I'm picturing if I was going through those two experiences and I was a secular Jew, it probably would want to make me explore history, to understand what's happened in these places, what is the significance of these places. It wouldn't necessarily impact me in a religious way, more in a curious historical way. So what do you think you were feeling inside from these two experiences you had?
1: Well, it's interesting because I loved history. My two passions in, in school were math and history, but I almost never studied Jewish history. In fact, I was very, very aware of politics. I remember even in 68 being very conscious of the election all things going on, but I was very unaware of the 67 war. I was very unaware of the 73 war. Judaism was so behind in the back of my mind. It never occurred to me, really, to look into Jewish history at that point. I just was uncomfortable.
0: <laughs> but when you were at the Kotel, aside from seeing a lot of tourists, you must have also seen people fill tefillin, praying against the wall, putting the notes in. So what are you thinking about that as you're watching it happen?
1: I'm in the Kotel. Backpack, shorts, tank top, the whole deal. Paper yarmulke on my head. And the guy there with the tefillin says to me, Did you put tefillin on today? And I'm thinking to myself, tefillin, what is that? But then I remembered that I once was at a bar mitzvah when I saw tefillin. In my entire life, I saw it one time. So for some reason I thought, well, maybe that's what he's talking about. So I said, no, I think he said to me, so you have to put them on. I don't recall him asking me. Now I'm wearing a tank top, which means there's no sleeves. So before I know it, he's wrapping it around my arm. So it was like extremely uncomfortable. I felt like every single guy at the Koto was staring at me, especially when he says I should say the blessings. So he shows me the blessings in Hebrew, which could have just as easily been in Chinese for all it could help me. So I'm looking at these blessings. I've got no idea. So what's he start doing? Saying it word by word. Baruch, Baruch. Atah, Atah. It takes a very long time to say the blessings like that and I'm feeling like everyone thinks this guy's a total idiot. I couldn't wait to get them off. It was a terrible, terrible experience. my, my, my first time in my life putting Trephilan on. So, okay, finally, I at some point, it finished. I took them off. I left and feeling extremely uncomfortable. Then, as I'm leaving the Kotel, I went back to the Rover. So then the next step that happened was extremely significant for me. When I was in UCLA, in the program to become a high school math teacher, We had a very close knit group. And at the end of the year, we started talking about our plans for the year. One guy in the group said he's planning to come to Jerusalem to study to be a rabbi, which seemed like a wacko thing to do. And I said to him, oh, when I'm there, maybe I'll look you up. It never occurred to me to ask him, where are you gonna study? I figured, how many places could there be to be a rabbi in Jerusalem? Probably one or two places. So I said, okay, I had my, all I knew was his name. Then I'm walking through the Rova. I see a sign. It's a white sign with black writing on it, with four words. It says yeshiva, the next word I don't remember. And then below it says Rabbinical Academy. So I'm thinking, oh, that's probably where my friend is. So I start looking for the place. Pretty soon, I've lost track of where the sign is. I have no idea where I am. I forgot the name of the yeshiva. Had I not, it had not said rabbinical academy, I wouldn't even know what the word yeshiva meant. But okay, so I figured that must be the Hebrew word for a rabbinical academy. So I'm walking around with my tank top shorts and backpack asking people, do you know where the yeshiva is? And someone took me Tesha to Torah. So I walk into the office. And there's a secretary there. I tell her my friend's name. And she looks at the roster and she says, no, he's not here. Okay, thank you very much. Turn to walk out the door. So very quickly, very cleverly, she says to me, why don't you talk to one of the rabbis? Maybe he could help you. So I'm thinking it'll help me find my friend. So they showed me into Rabbi Weinberg, and I spent about an hour in his office. And like I said, that was the first time in my entire life I ever spoke to a religious Jew. And it was a fascinating conversation. He, He was a fascinating person. He looked like someone from an ancient picture, but he spoke with a thick New York accent. And he was very relevant and very so like I told you before, I thought anyone who believes in guys must be stupid. Of course, I realized he's he's a very intelligent person. So that was a very big paradigm shift for me. And basically he tried to con- convince me to stay in Yeshiva, which I decided I wasn't gonna do then. But I said, you know what? I'll come back. And I and I meant it. The experience you
0: describe of being so uncomfortable putting on to fill in, you know, I've had that experience when I've had to be connected to something in another religion where you're saying this feels like totally wrong to me but the fact that secular Jews when they're doing something that's orthodox for the first time and I had the same experience I was traveling through Italy and there was a Chabad there and they said have you wrapped your tefill and the next thing I knew was like going on my arm at that point in my life it felt as foreign as if it was a completely different religion and now I'm looking back thinking I can't believe that is the same religion that I was born into but I just had never been exposed to all these other things that are part of it
1: I think because It was Jewish. That's why I felt so uncomfortable. Because I understood it's relevant to me. Had it been a different religion, I don't think it would have been so uncomfortable. I would have said, okay, it's it's an interesting experience. Like when I was in Turkey, I went to a mosque and I took my shoes off. I don't care. That was fine. I, I wasn't uncomfortable there. Here I'm uncomfortable because I know it's relevant to me and I don't know how.
0: I want to go back now to the conversation you were having with Rabbi Weinberg. So he was convincing you to stay You must have felt like it was like too much, too soon to be like, sure, of course, I'll stay right now from one conversation. But the fact that you said, I'll come back, what did that mean to you at that time? Did That mean you were going back to the United States? Did it mean you were going to stay in Israel? Like, what did you think in your mind when you made that comment to him?
1: At that point in my life, I was very, very flexible. I felt whenever I go up to America, I'll have a job. I can work as a substitute teacher. I'll have my own classroom. So I had no worries about that. So I was looking for interesting experiences, I felt when I was in Jerusalem, especially the old city, this is a special place. And to live there for free, with free meals, and also take classes, to me was a very, very positive experience. So it wasn't hard, it wasn't, I wasn't a hard sell. And I also prided myself in being a truth seeker. And like I said, I was so uncomfortable Jewishly that maybe I should learn a little bit about it and deal with that discomfort by understanding something.
0: So then when you said to him, I'll be back, how much time passed till you made a decision to come back? And there must have been some kind of conversation with your parents, like, you remember this whole teacher thing I talked about after graduation? I'm thinking of going in a different direction. Maybe you didn't know the full extent of what was going to happen, but at least that something was changing at that point.
1: For sure, I didn't know where it was going. (laughs) That's for sure. Also, by the way, in those days, you didn't make phone calls to America. It was so expensive that the only way you communicate was by letters. So... I think part of the reason I said no right then, well actually, my sister was actually coming to the country, to visit Israel then, so I was I was gonna meet her and I was also interested, and my cousin was on a kibbutz at the time and she was gonna have a wedding there, I wanted to go there, but I expected to go back within a week or two. In fact, what happened was I went to a, my own kibbutz and I spent about two months there. And then there was a break in the time I was on kibbutz and that's when I decided to go back to that place. But I always had my mind of going back.
0: What did you think you were going back for? Because I would think the way you just said in your previous answer, you didn't know where this would all lead. I wouldn't think going back to you meant I'm going to become an Orthodox Jew. I would think at that point you're thinking this guy was pretty interesting and I want to learn more about Judaism, things I didn't get as a kid. So where is your head at when you decide to come back?
1: What you just said, I think is exactly what I was thinking. I'll have an interesting experience. I'll be at this place for about like a week or so if everyone else in the place is as interesting as he is, I'll, it'll be great. I'll have a chance to live in Jerusalem, and um, it'll be interesting, it'll be an interesting experience. I was a Californian after all, so having experiences is, you know, very normal for people there. So your mind is in this place of,
0: this is going to be a week or two, but I introduced you as a rabbi, so a week or two must have advanced into something like far more than what you thought you were initially getting into. So how does this Introduction to a week or two becomes something more. What's that point we realize? Wow, there might be something here.
1: He mentioned to me that we can prove there's a God, and we can prove that Torah is true. I found that fascinating, because I was assumed religion has nothing about proof. It's simply a decision. It's a leap of faith, and you accept it or you don't accept it. As a person who I felt I was a rational person, that was totally unacceptable to me. When he said, we can prove to you there's a God, I found that very fascinating. So I said, okay. It never occurred to me that he would be successful. I mean, in my mind, believing in God was basically like someone saying, I can prove there's a tooth fairy or or Santa Claus. It was that ridiculous to me. So I I wasn't nervous at all going back. It wasn't like I was saying, oh my gosh, what's gonna happen now? It never occurred to me. I just figured they'll say what they'll say, I won't be convinced. I'll have any experience and that'll be it. So without trying to recreate
0: all of the classes that you took there, was there a point in time or a particular thing that was said to you that took you from being someone who equated Hashem to, well, this is like the Tooth Fairy or Santa Claus, like something you can't see. So why would you believe it into, oh, wait, maybe they've got something here and I should start stripping away some of the beliefs I came into this place with.
1: When I came back to the yeshiva, I came back on a Friday afternoon for some reason, I thought it was a normal time to, to arrive, not occurring to me that there won't be any classes on a Friday afternoon. So I walk in the base medrash, and there's one person there, and he took me back to his apartment and said, okay, well, he set me up for Shabbos. He gave me a quick Hilchah Shabbos, told me three things, don't turn lights on and off, don't write, and don't tear toilet paper. That was my initial Hilchah Shabbos. So my first experience was Shabbos, not classes. And then I thought to myself, what am I going to do? A lot of time on Shabbos. What will I do? So there was a, actually someone had written a short, like a very l- rough booklet of a collection of arguments for God and Torah. So I read that booklet cover to cover on Shabbos. And by Motzai Shabbos, I was already getting nervous. I hadn't gone to one class yet. But just by seeing this booklet and seeing the arguments, I already started realizing this is not as simple as I thought it would be. Then I stayed for classes, and every night I went to sleep with my head pounding. I felt like a guy who was totally out of shape, who walked into a gym where every guy's pumping iron. I was in great shape, and I'm completely out of shape. And it was so ironic because I thought everyone's believing a guy must be an idiot, and meanwhile these are the most, most intelligent people, and I'm the guy that's not up to speed, By around Tuesday or Wednesday, I had to leave. My head is spinning. My world's upside down. I'm not religious yet, but I have to think about it. So I remember one of the guys was trying very hard to convince me, you have to commit to coming back here if you leave, which was no way in the world I was going to do that. So I said, no, I'm not making any commitments until I walk out the door. Already on the bus ride from Yushalayim to my uncle, I already decided I'm coming back. I just had to be outside the four walls of the yeshiva to do that. And I decided I'm going to come back and spend a few months studying. Because this is important. I'm not going to run away from truth.
0: So there must come a point when you decide to go back, especially because you committed more time, so there's not as much pressure to decide what you think immediately. Like in 24 hours or 48 hours, you can really like take your time of letting the information come in. There must have been a point where you go from, this is really interesting to learn about, to, wow, this could be a way of life for me, and I might want to do the things that I'm learning. So at what point does it cross over from education to possibly changing your life?
1: I went back to the yeshiva. I went back to my kibbutz first, my secular kibbutz, and I decided I'll come back there after New Year's Eve, because I figured it will probably be very boring in yeshiva on New Year's Eve. So after New Year's Eve was over, I then came back to the beginning of January, I know by already by Pesach I was already taking it very seriously. So that was maybe two or three months or so. Because the arguments were very solid. It was it, it seemed so simple. And pretty soon I was articulating these arguments to newer students. And then slowly start taking things on. One thing that was very helpful for me about Isha Torah was there was no pressure to start doing things before you were ready. You didn't have to come to Davening, you didn't have to you can do what you want. You could just take your time. So it was very good, a very healthy environment for me. And uh, I took things on slow.
0: Now, you describe going at this slower, healthier pace, but I happen to read Rabbi Weinberg's biography where it talks about him turning his disciples into teachers very quickly. Like once they know something, then it's your job to go out there and spread it to others, which I would think is going to have a lot to do with how your career turns out. But how long into your journey did it become clear wow, this is not just going to be about me learning this and understanding this, but there's going to be an expectation that I now spread this out to others.
1: Yeah, for sure. That was, see, it was funny because I was always interested in being a teacher. So I simply switched my topic from math to Judaism. And then I was talking to people. It was a fascinating place in those days. You would get lots of responsibility at a very early stage. I was already teaching when I'd been from about a year and a half, which sounds crazy. There was a guy who'd been running the beginners program who'd been religious less than two years. Rabbi Weinberg gave us massive amounts of responsibility at a very, very early stage. And we had a lot of success. And he tried he believed in us and we all grew enormously by taking on projects. So I was teaching from the relative relatively from the beginning. So how does
0: your life now unfold? I love what you said about you were meant to be a teacher, you just changed the subject from math to Judaism. I read in your bio a lot of interesting places that you ultimately taught around the world. So how does your life unfold at that point? Do you then get married somewhere along the way? And I'd love to hear what your wife's background was and how that kind of joins into your life as you continue on your journey.
1: I was, Like I said, I was teaching within like a year and a half. And then, of course, I'm continuing to learn and continuing to teach. And that continued until I got married. I got married in 85 with one of the very few, very few people I dated who came from a froom background. And um, so we got married. And then I started teaching much more. And I was interested in going to an Torah branch. But there were very few branches at that point. So I heard about a particular position teaching for a day school in San Francisco. At first, I thought it was a crazy idea to go to San Francisco. But then, interestingly, I heard about the same position two more times from three separate sources. By that point, I felt I have to look into it. So I actually met the head of the school when he was in in Israel, and then I went there. He had something set up called the Institute for Jewish Legal Ethics and the Institute for Jewish Medical Ethics. So basically once a month I would research a topic in law and in medicine and teach it in various law offices throughout the Bay Area and various hospitals throughout the Bay Area. I researched topics like heart transplants, abortion, Uh, scarce resources, all kinds of topics. It was a fascinating job. So I did that for about two years. And then there was an opportunity to join the Torah branch in New York, which I did. So I moved from my family from San Francisco to New York. I worked there for four years. And then after the four years, we came back to Israel to work with Eshator in Jerusalem.
0: And so you've been there ever since after the stops in California, New York, is Jerusalem primarily where you then raise your family?
1: Yeah, and we came back with, uh, with four kids, and we raised them here.
0: So I want to transition a little bit from the introduction I talked about, the, the family tragedy that you experienced. So I want to give you an opportunity both to share the book that you ended up writing about this and the connection to what happened with your family and, and whatever you feel comfortable sharing about that moment as you're raising your family of what happens.
1: It was actually a remarkable hashgacha that happened when the whole thing began. I was in San Francisco and I'm teaching classes, like I said, for doctors and lawyers, but I was also interested in doing a key roof class, just an outreach class in my house. Anyone can come, no charge, anyone can just walk in. So I was doing that. So then I decided to put together a series called How God Runs the World. And there was two classes in there on the topic of challenges and difficulties. So I called it Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, Understanding It Intellectually, and part two, understanding it emotionally. I'm dealing with it emotionally. It was a Tuesday night class. The second week when I was scheduled to give the class, dealing with it emotionally, that afternoon, we got the diagnosis. Our eldest daughter had leukemia. So besides being a devastating piece of news, the juxtaposition of that news with the class I was scheduled to give that night of dealing with it emotionally was very, very dramatic. So I remember Rabbi Weinberg calling me and I told him about this, and I suggested to him, perhaps it was wrong for me to have taught this topic, because what do I know about difficulties and challenges? So he said, "That's a mistake." He told me, "If you're teaching people the proper Jewish perspective on these difficult issues, don't worry, Hashem's not going to give you a potch because of that." And I realized that this is really an opportunity for me to teach these topics. In a much much deeper way because it's now much more personal to me and really since that point i've always felt the need to do that so i write in my book that the book really began over 30 years ago it began on that day on january 9th when i got the diagnosis of our daughter and um, so our daughter had initially a very very positive prognosis childhood leukemia generally has a good prognosis So she had a treatment of about just over two years. Everything went according to plan, and she was in remission. And she stayed in remission for almost 10 years. By that point, we were back in Israel. When she was 11 and a half, shortly before her bat mitzvah, we got the terrible news that she relapsed. The doctors told us it's extremely unusual for that to happen. To be in remission for close to 10 years, it almost never happens. But unfortunately for us, it did happen. So then we had a very, very intense period because when it comes back, you have to deal with it much more aggressively. My daughter actually had four separate bone marrow transplants. And finally, at the end of this whole long process of um, over three years of intense treatments, very tragically, she passed away on Shabbos, on a Shabbos uh, evening. And then what I started to do was on her yard site or near her yard site was to research various topics related to the tall issue of challenges and difficulties in life like early on i dealt with the issue about being angry at god and i dealt with the issue about seeing messages in our challenges and uh, later on i dealt with the issue about Nahama, what's it mean to get consolation and then i started a website called jewishclarity.com and i started to post these articles because I felt important for other people. After a number of years of doing this, I decided to try to make a book out of it. And I approached Mosaica Publishers. It's a, a local publishing group in Israel. And they said that they liked the idea. And I published it about a little bit over, more than a year and a half ago. And the title was, Pain is a Reality, Suffering is a Choice. And the important word in that title is the word choice. Because oftentimes things happen to us which we can't control but we can always control our response to what happens to us. And I think that's such an important thing, particularly in today's world where there's such a thought that we don't really have choices. We're just helpless and things happen to us and we can't respond and and we have very little control over what do we do. The foundation of Judaism is choice and free will. And I really believe in that and I have The most important goal of the book, I would say, is to empower people to realize, even when very hard things happen to you, you have choices.
0: I just want to say, first of all, you know, how sorry I am to hear this story and for your loss. I can't even imagine, as a parent of three children myself, what it must be like to go through this. And, you know, the way you say that the pain is a reality, suffering is a choice. There's another piece of that, which is Some might say your continued belief in Hashem could be a choice because I could see someone going through something like this or, you know, another situation that's just as bad who's starting to say, why would Hashem do this to me? And then naturally ask a next question, do I still believe in Hashem given what just happened to me? So beyond the grief, how were you grappling with the continued connection to Judaism?
1: Well, I was very fortunate to have Rabbi Weinberg as my Rosh Hashiva. He gave all of his students a tremendous foundation in Emunah and Bittachon. I think that's why I was able to grow through the whole experience and to deal with all experience. It was interesting, the way you said it it was interesting. You said, people would say, now I lose my belief in God. Belief in God, not. You can lose your relationship with God. interesting, someone once told me an interesting story. He said there was someone in his synagogue where he grew up, an elderly Holocaust survivor. And this Holocaust survivor came to a synagogue every saturday would stand the entire service and not say a word he was showing the whole shul the whole community i am not going to pray so i asked people do you think he believes in god of course he believes in god he's angry at god if you don't believe in god there's a lot more pleasant ways to spend a saturday than standing for three or four hours and not saying a word he is angry at god and he wants to show i'm not going to pray so the choice really in life, is not between belief in God. I believe that everyone believes in God. The choice is simply, will you have a relationship with God? And paradoxically, the issue of challenges and difficulties is probably the strongest way to show people that they believe in God. I oftentimes tell people that I can prove there's a God. On my website, I have five different arguments for God's existence, proofs. But I, I often I will tell people, but rather than me prove there's a God, let me try doing something different than that. I'll prove to you that you believe in God. And and one of the strongest ways to show people that they believe in God is the actual issue itself of difficulties. What do people say? How could this happen? Why do the righteous have difficulties? Why do the wicked prosper? That question makes no sense if you don't believe in God. If you take God out of the picture, why shouldn't the righteous have difficulties? Why shouldn't the wicked prosper? why makes no sense if you don't believe in god so i believe the issue itself and particularly the outrage behind the question how could this happen outrage is when our expectations are violated so of course we can all hope there won't be difficulties but to expect there shouldn't be difficulties makes no sense if you don't believe in god so really the choice that i faced was not between believing in god and not believing in god it was between having a relationship with god or not and in many ways, I would say my relationship with God is much deeper because of the difficulties I went through.
0: So the fact that you have a book about this topic and your story is out there, do you have a number of parents who approach you either when they're in the thick of a difficult illness or they've they've lost a child and they're looking to you to kind of guide them through it? And And if so, it has to be totally different when you're talking to someone where something just happened versus when there's some distance from the tragedy.
1: Yes, that's for sure. Today's Torah, one of my students, his mother had cancer. One of my students, his father passed away. So I'm off in the address. And I'm happy to talk to people because no one ever sets out to be an expert in challenges and difficulties in life. But once you're in the situation, you should use the situation to help other people. One sort of beautiful idea from Rabbi Left. he says, when people are faced with difficulties, the obvious question people ask is Lama why he says you could also ask lama for what so we may not always understand lama why but we can always do something now you can always move forward in some way make the world a better place think about how many amazing organizations are in the jewish world that were started by people who went through a trauma and maybe a very severe trauma i would guess probably the majority of the amazing chesed organizations in the Jewish world were started by and are probably supported by people who went through massive difficulties. To me, that's an example of Lama, in some way move forward in a positive manner.
0: So we're talking a lot in this part of the interview about trauma and tragedy, so I think it's important at this moment to mention that we're recording this interview a couple weeks after the tragedy that happened in Israel and what Hamas did. So I just wanted to give you an opportunity, especially since you're based in Yerushalayim, to kind of convey to our audience what it's like there now, your thoughts on what's going on.
1: It's a very surreal situation. I live in Beit Shemesh, and I'm in Yerushalayim on a regular basis. There are sirens, for sure there are sirens, and we even hear booms sometimes. I will tell you a story, which I think is a very powerful story about a lesson which is very relevant for the trauma we're going through right now. This is a story that happened in the early years of Torah. a student who came, and his father was a Holocaust survivor, and he was getting involved in Judaism in Torah, which to the dismay of his father, his father sent his, you know the daughter and the sister of the boy to Israel to kind of rescue him. She started studying Judaism. So now he's really beside himself. So he comes to Israel to try to check out what's happened with his kids. He's standing outside the base medrash of Esha Torah, screaming against God. My parents are so religious, and I look at what happened to them, and all the people were so religious, look what happened to them, and where was God? And he's screaming. All the students are feeling terrible about this scene, this guy in front screaming against God, but we're all intimidated. What are we going to do? One student goes out and says to the guy, I have a question to ask you if you had to go back right now back to the camps and be there as a prisoner as you were or be one of the guards what would you choose he said in a second i'd go back as a prisoner i would never be one of the guards and that was a tremendous paradigm shift for him because he realized as awful as what he had gone through was there could have been something much worse he could have been the perpetrator of the evil And I think that's a very important message. That's really all of Jewish history. What happened on October 7th on Simcha's Torah was horrible. But Jewish history has had many horrible things happen. We are the ones carrying morality in the world. Unfortunately, people attack us for that. That's what anti Semitism really is at at its core. And this is what happened on October 7th on Simcha's Torah. It's terrible, but thank God we're part of the Jewish people carrying the message of morality in the world, and we're not part of the evil, that's against that message. It's it's as clear as you can get of good versus evil, light versus darkness. The people who are happy about this, siding against Israel, I'm sorry to say, they've chosen the path of evil. It's so tragic to see that, and to see Jews sometimes be the ones doing that. It's so sad to see that. But at the end of the day, the Jewish people will survive this, as we always have, and will continue spreading our message. And when, when you see the media side with Hamas, it's shocking. I saw something, someone said, the same media that demanded of Israel, give us photographic evidence. If you claim that they butchered babies and they burned, we want to see the evidence. We want to see clear, clear proof. Then when Hamas says Israel bombed a hospital, Zero proof. Zero. It's just unbelievable to me that intelligent people who think of themselves as good people can so clearly side with evil. But that's our free will.
0: And I know we could do an entire podcast just on what's going on in Israel, but we also want to be respectful of your time. So I want to ask you one final question before we close the interview. Most of the time when I interview a teacher, they're also a big-time learner. So I thought it would be good to close with what you're currently learning or what's coming up for you as you continue to grow in your Judaism.
1: I, I learn regularly from my daughter's merit. So every every day I learn three chapters of Mishnah in my daughter's merit. Separate from that, I work on different projects. I research topics, which I end up putting on my website. So the topics I've been working on recently are understanding the status of Jews across the spectrum, person, let's say my, like myself, who is raised with almost no Jewish background, what's their situation? How responsible are they? That was a topic I recently was working on. I'm also working on new ideas. Almost all my topics relate somehow to the issue of challenges in life and how God deals with the world relative to that. As a teacher, if you don't do your own learning, your learning is stale. If you continue learning, then you're like a cup that's bubbling over and then your learning is fresh. So yeah, so thank God I'm involved in a lot of general learning projects and I have the opportunity to teach lots and lots of people in yeshiva and out of yeshiva. And um, that's what a Jewish life is about, learning and growing and trying to help.
0: Let me just say what I love about this interview is how clearly and articulately you're able to share your journey, how it happened, why you made the choices that you did, how your life unfolded, and you just have this very logical step-by-step approach to how it all unfolded and it came out in this beautiful place. So I just want to say, Rabbi Usher Resnick, thank you for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you very much. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.